Welcome to Exit the Red Race, the podcast for high performers who want to enter the next level in business and in life with more focus, more energy, clarity, and freedom. We don't do dusty book wisdom or guru quotes. It's all about real, extraordinary experiences and the raw lessons from daily life. He asks you the questions that no one else does. Sometimes tough, sometimes in your face, but always with one goal, challenging you to live your most legendary life. Here's your host, Daniel Kluke. Exit the Red Race. Today I'm talking with Luke Sherpa. Luke Sherpa was, is an entrepreneur and he lived in a town called Chico, California. And what happened from one day to the other is that the whole town burned down. So what does that do to your identity as being an entrepreneur, losing everything you have, your house, your business, your clothes and other stuff? And how do you deal with reinventing your identity when you have lost it all? How do you deal with purchasing the same stuff again. What kind of experience and what kind of lessons can we all learn from that when life throws you a ball? Enjoy. Welcome everybody. Today here on this talk, I have Luke Sherba and I have the utmost of respect for Luke. I think we met each other in 2019. At that time, I think you just start to live in Chico again because circumstances forced him to move out because Luke, he lived in, in paradise. And if you follow the news at that time, the city of paradise on, if I have correct, yeah, November 8, 2080 burned down to the ground. And I think just within a couple of hours, if you see the pictures, it's horrendous what, what happened over there. But even facing so many challenges for all those people over there. And the sad thing is 98 people lost their life also there. But within that sadness, within that hardness, there are also lessons to be found, beautiful things. And in a way you see the best and I think the worst in humanity. So we're going to explore in a way what triggered Luke to deal with himself, his family, because he just had a, a, a baby of 32 days uh, old. And the story he will tell about what happened is, I think, now there are lessons to be found. And I'm going to, I already promised him to ask some tough questions to really dive deep into, yeah, what was going on in his mind at that time. Thank you, Luke. So welcome here. And how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. It's uh, early here on the Pacific coast, so I'm a little bit Pacific time, but I'm doing great. It's exciting to see you. It's been a while. It's, it's, it's certainly been a while. And thank you for being here on this open conversation with me. Um, you can challenge me just as much as I will do with you. But what I remember, look, when we met in 2019, you just lost literally everything Besides some of your DJ gear, you serving cats, your two goats, your your baby and your partner and two cars, but you lost everything. But what caught my attention, Luke, was that your positive outlook on life 
going through those circumstances. And that was for me really the trigger to reach out to you to in a way share your story. So can you tell in your own words what happened that day and how you experienced it? Yeah, definitely. So on October 6th, we had a baby boy. We're blessed with a young baby boy. And 32 days later, November 8th, I was uh, past what they call a cover bridge in Butte Creek Canyon, just below Paradise. We hadn't got a lot of sleep in the last 32 days, of course, the new baby boy. Yeah. So wake up early, 6.30 in the morning or so, and you know, baby's crying, doing the normal stuff. We look outside, there's smoke, uh, and we lived in a fire area. So since we were slightly down in the canyon, we were much more attentive to fire damage. Uh, my wife is from a rural, rural area that deals with fires often. So we knew it was a possibility. We were paying attention. But I said, ah, babe, it's not a big deal. I'm, I'm going to go back to sleep. And because we'd been preparing, I checked my phone for all of the social media, county fire, uh, state fire, sheriff department, looking for notifications. And the fire was... Uh, 17.7 miles away from us. So I knew where it was, figured, okay, it's going to have to burn the entire city of paradise to get to us. So I went back to sleep. Almost sounds unbelievable, right? When you see something like that. Yeah. So I went back to sleep. An hour later, my wife wakes me up and says, no, I, th I think you need to get up. And I think we need to start preparing for, for leaving this, the cloud. The sky is dark. It's, there's a lot of smoke. This is big. I said, okay. So I get up and, you know, I, I jump in the shower thinking, okay, I'm, we're going to have to just evacuate for a couple of days. Well, we start getting some phone calls and family members start calling us saying, you guys need to evacuate. And since we were in the canyon, we couldn't see the flames and the sky's dark, but social media hadn't started saying anything yet. And then our power went out because it was still early. PG&E cut their power to our whole town or to our little canyon So we were then cut off from all outside communication early, early on in the, the day. So we're sitting there. We know that, okay, there's a fire coming, but we don't know how big it is. So I go outside and I realize, oh, this fire is massive. So I come back inside and say, okay, we've got to go. Well, we had a small farm, so I couldn't pack up all of the animals. We had rabbits, we had chickens, we had horse, we had goats. So I locked up as many of the animals as I could. So they weren't running around in case we weren't coming back for a couple of days. Yeah. Put all the cats and cat carriers. We grabbed the goats. I loaded them up in my car. And my wife was smart. She went and grabbed food, uh, clothes and food for the baby. Uh, I wasn't thinking as a guy. Um, <laughs> and she said, you know, I'm just going to get out of here and be safe. I'm going to be ahead of it. So she left as early as she could. Hmm. So I stayed for another hour or so watching the smoke I didn't get to see flames because I was just below the crest where the flames were trying to decide, do I stay? Do I, do I fight for my house? Um, interesting feeling to think about, do I stay and try to pretend, protect my stuff? Yeah. Um, because I had a baby boy, I decided it's not worth staying because you know, fires, how bad can they be? I've got a hose. I can, you know, fight off the fire. Well, the power went out. So our pump wouldn't have worked. So I would have been stuck without water. So Because of my wife's encouragement, I loaded everything up and I drove around, made sure the neighbors were okay. And then I did end up leaving the canyon. And when I got towards the base of the canyon, I could see the flames and there was just a line of traffic 
some people waited in traffic for three, four hours. Um, some people didn't make it out in the traffic. I myself was able to uh, escape through the canyon and get to my mother-in-law's house. Grounds, right? Yeah, so I was able to actually meet the traffic at the base uh, right where it joins into Chico. Wow. And my mother-in-law lived there. So I drove through a side field and went to my mother-in-law's house. Then I went to work because what independent self-working man wouldn't go to work on a day like this. And I start calling all my staff and my employees and say, hey, I think we need to postpone all of our work today. And unanimously, everybody I called said, yes, I just lost my house. I'm not coming in today. Yes, I just lost my house or this or that. So I'm at work realizing, oh, okay, I'm watching the news and I'm watching all of Paradise uh, burn down. I think I had two or three clients that day I was supposed to shoot video with and they lost their houses. Uh, all of our dance studio, uh, some of our instructors lost their homes, some, a third of our students lost their homes. By the end of the day, I'm watching everything unfold. And then I call my wife at five o'clock to say, hey, I'm, you know, I guess I'm gonna come home and how are you doing? And she says, we're now being evacuated for a second time because my mother-in-law's house at the base at Chico mm. is now about to, get, to burn. So I drive out to her house and I can see, you know, huge flames. And she was right at the edge of Chico and they evacuated her. So then we were moving for a second time. Fortunately, my mother-in-law didn't lose her house. Um, we ended up staying there for five months after, after the fire. Uh, but yeah, it was a unique experience. It was, yeah, indeed. Not a lot of people. And I've been later in Chico and also the tour to paradise. And uh, I will share some uh, video or some photos in this uh, in this episode that the people that are watching, they can see it. It's literally with what you see in the movies, right? It's like those end of the world kind of movies going on. And what you're saying, Luke, and what triggers me is like, you were living in the canyon. So you can literally saw the people there standing in traffic and now knowing that so many people have lost their lives waiting there for so many hours. That That is, of course, something is that is unbelievable. What were you telling yourself when you saw those when you saw those flames coming up so high, right? It's like when you make a campfire, everything is nice and everything is controlled, but it is a force of nature. And when you see nature in a way reclaiming things, what did you tell yourself at that moment? Well, I I'll give my wife a lot of credit and say I'm blessed to have had a child just before the fire. The way we were at in the canyon. I could have driven back up into paradise. There's back roads into paradise. My foolish nature was, I'm going to go up there and help people. So mm. I was would have probably driven up there if I didn't have uh, a brand new son. Looking back now after I had left, I would have been more, I would have caused more chaos by going up there. I would have congested the roads even more, gotten away. Usually you think, the firefighters are going to stop the fire. It's great to have help. Uh, the firefighters weren't even able to, all they could do was evacuate people. Yeah. There was nothing they could do. So my initial thought was I called everybody in the Canyon. I waited. I tried to find my neighbors. I almost drove up into the area. Foolish me. And uh, yeah, that was my original thought, but unfortunately that didn't happen. So, so what I hear you say, and, and 
that's uh, with my interest in human behavior. So your natural way of behaving would be going up and going into town with, and then I'm checking with you, probably a real chance that that you wouldn't help at least, but also that you would be in harm's place yourself, right? But because of your partner and something, let's say there's new life in your life, you made another decision that in a way could say saved your life too. Yeah. I mean, whenever we're encountered with danger, we have either a fight or a flight reaction or paralyzed. And I'm not a huge fighter. I'm not aggressive. But in this, in most circumstances, if someone needs help or there's danger, I've been raised and taught to rise to the occasion and to go and help. So in this circumstance, I thought it was something that maybe I can go and help. How do I go do my part? And so that was my first reaction. My first reaction wasn't run. My first reaction wasn't to freeze. My first reaction was how do I, how do I fight? How do I help? Yeah. Fortunately, my cognitive ability kicked in and I didn't drive up, up honey run and into the problem. And, and the interesting thing is you say my cognitive ability to make conscious that decision. But the interesting thing is, wouldn't it be more like an instinctive decision based on being there for your kids? It was a really willful choice because there was in the circ- in circumstances, and you know this more than anybody with the NLP stuff, the emotions happen. They're real no matter what you do. So at that point, it was, I can either react to my emotions or I can think of, I can stop and think about it and decide what I'm going to make out of this outcome. And my wife is very similar. Uh, she worked with exotic wildlife with lions and tigers and bears leading up into the fire. So the both of us spent a lot of time thinking about how we react to circumstances. I was also a junior police officer, spent time around law enforcement and different things. So what do you do in a circumstance? And in, in faith with Christianity and different things of if you're faced with this circumstance, what do you do? So I've always told myself, ahead of time, prepping for these situations, if these things happen, what do you do? So at the time, my mindset, my emotions, everything was set to react, to fight, to help, to to go and be, Hmm. uh, 89 people died because they couldn't get out. I could have maybe helped some of them. Yeah. Uh, My cognitive ability said, there's only four or five ways into paradise. Everybody's going down the two ways down. If I block one of the arteries up, it's a one lane windy road that's hard to do without a fire. Do I actually bring value to the circumstance or do I add risk? I have a baby at home, which I should go and be with my baby. That's my priority and not the people up there. So that was a willful decision. So, so in a way, instead of, let's say the, 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 the fight or flight system took over, you created space within yourself to make that conscious decision. There was literally that room for you. Like, okay, Let's take one step back, analyze this, and this isn't uh, the wisest step to do. Would you, like living there in that gorge and also, uh, I think fire in your area isn't, let's say it's some, something new. It's always, there's always a risk, right? Have you ever were already, let's say, prepared for things like that, that you were like, okay, did you have like, for example, safety bag ready for, for things like that? Yeah. Because I can imagine when you have that. I was... I'll say I was mentally prepared, but I was not physically prepared. Um, knowing now what I know, 
uh, I would prepare much different. Uh, it's important to have a, a go bag, a bag that when it's time to go, you just grab it. All of your important documents, uh, there should be supplies. My wife grew up in a fire zone, so she knew all of that. Mm -hmm. I had only heard about it. So to me, we've been in the canyon for two years. I was mentally prepared for 24 months. This could happen, this could happen, but it'll never happen to me, right? So I was not as prepared as I should have been. And if I ever live in a fire zone area, even if I don't live in a fire zone area, I should uh, prepare a go bag, a, a thing, a set of, in my car, I have things I need. I had that before the fire. So my car is uh, equipped with the basic things I need. Yeah. That, that's an interesting thing. And that's a pattern that I see a lot that people, when they come to stressful situations, is when you analyze before you went into that flight fight uh, situation and you focus on, let's say, the positive choices you create for yourself, it's much easier to make a choice like that than when you're overwhelmed and you just deal more in a reactive way coming up to things. And and what you say so beautifully, if I wouldn't have my little little baby boy, I probably have chosen another direction, right? And um, because I can, I can even imagine when you have a beautiful partner that has experience with it, but she tries to convince you on a cognitive level and you don't have your baby boy in your life that you probably with your background being Christianity going, probably still go up and try to help, right? Would that be another different situation? You know, she, uh, she did the smartest thing she could do. She was so smart. She just grabbed the baby, packed up and said, I love you. I'll see you at, tonight at home. And she just drove out. She didn't ask me to leave. She didn't ask me when I was leaving. She didn't text me that I was like, are you left? She just, she knew that I needed to make my decision. And so she left. So that was the support I needed to stay that extra hour to make that decision of what do I do? And, and of course, you talked about it later, right? And every year things go more to, to the back. But when you just, when you were talking with each other, when everything happened, what, what did you share with your wife at that moment? I will say that no relationship is easy. All relationships take work. And I've learned that no matter who you're with, it, it, there's just challenges. So with that said, my wife and I are on the exact same mindset of how we deal with these types of circumstances. So we didn't have to discuss it ahead of time and we didn't have to debrief it afterwards or ask each other why we made the decisions. We knew ahead of time, we were in the same mindset. We have the same outlook on those types of things, those obstacles, those challenges, how we face those circumstances. And I knew that going into it, I chose her because she is the partner I can spend my life with to make those types of decisions make the bed the same way or do dishes the same way. No, uh, super frustrating, but uh, otherwise life isn't spicy enough. So you need a little bit of those situations. Yeah. So there's plenty of those relationship challenges, but I knew going into to pregnancy, having a baby going into that morning, how she was going to react. So we didn't, we didn't have to debrief it or ask each other, why did you do this? It was, she is a good partner for that type of stuff. And so. did you, and I'm just looking, yeah, two men talking to each other, after a situation like that, and she gave you exactly what you need to look, and you're finished, and you see your baby boy when you come there. Do you see your partner in a different light going through an experience like that? Because, yeah, the shit hits the fan, literally. The fire itself was a very bonding or congealing time for me and my wife. We have now been married for six years, uh, 2013. So no, it's eight, 
2014. So we've been married for seven years, so six and a half. So we've been married for six and a half years. And the first four years were probably as challenging as anybody in a marriage would be. Going through that experience of starting over with our possessions, losing all of our personal possessions, our home, having a baby, being essentially homeless for four months, sleeping on a couch. My mother-in-law was actually pretty great to give us a, a room to sleep in. That was a strengthening time for me and my wife. It wasn't about who's done the dishes or how do you make the bed or your little quirks bother me. It was, we need to get through this together. If we don't work together, we may not live. So we have to get through the fire. We went through emergency for four months, you know, two weeks of smoke and no things. Then you slowly start to get things. Then I had to go and run my business in Chico. Then I had to close down my business in Chico. Then I had to go and clean up the lot up there. We left 40 chickens behind. So fortunately, all of the chickens made it. So wow. we had to then go up and evacuate the chickens. Yeah, we locked them in the, we locked the chickens into the chicken coop. So they didn't burn because the horse, the goats and all the animals kept the field down where the barn was. Mm. So the barn with the uh, horse and the chickens made it. Mm. Um, so we had to get back up and get the chickens out. We had to get the horse rescued. Our friend rescued the horse and brought it down. So we had not only smoke and lung con I stocked up on masks because of the because uh, of the campfire. Uh, so yeah, we had natural disaster for two weeks, clearing out the property, taking care of a baby, figuring out how to get clothes. It's freezing cold out. One of the things that was side, slight side note, people always ask, you lost everything. You must be traumatized. How was it? Driving into Chico with the only the possessions essentially on my back, you walk into Costco and go, oh yeah, I remember that sweatshirt that I bought last year. I like that one. The stores had all of the things that I needed. So I could walk into Costco and buy a sweatshirt. I bought lots of clothes, warm, warm clothes. Cause I was freezing. Yeah. So I don't like being cold. I didn't like being cold. Now I love it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of times, and I don't know how it is around the world, but in America, we tend to have a, what was me, a victim attitude of, Oh, well, you know, we deserve this. It's a Liberty that we fought for our Liberty Liberty. So we deserve to be able to drive or have a cell phone or we feel entitled. I don't know that we deserve that stuff. I don't know that we earn that stuff. My son was born into a world that I am able to provide things for him, but I don't know that he earned, he, he didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He just is gifted it. And some people aren't gifted that. Some people aren't born into that. So for me, at that point in my life, I still could walk into a store and buy a new sweatshirt. I could still go and get food. I could still go buy, and tooth, buy a toothbrush go to my brother's house, my mom's house, my mother-in-law's house, any one of my friend's house. And there was places to go. A lot of people around the world don't have the opportunity to just go to a nice house and stay there or to go get warm or to buy a sweatshirt. So yeah, I lost all my personal stuff, but there's always tomorrow. Yeah. And can, the interesting build. thing is like when you lose everything and yes, you can go into Costco and you can purchase it when you have the, the means to that. Are you experiencing purchasing that same sweater again, for example? Did you experience it in a total different way than you did in the Absolutely. first time you did? I, you know, it's easy to collect things. I had a hard time 
getting rid of things. I don't like to take things to the gift store, uh, to the thrift shop or to give things away. I just, I keep it. And so yeah. then I have my favorite sweater and then a new favorite sweater. And I have a closet full of things. Post fire, I became a very much, uh, became a minimalist for sure. I didn't want things. People kept trying to bring me things. And I would say, stop. Thanks for bringing me things, but I have nowhere to put it. I don't want new things. I don't want, I don't have memories to these things. I'm going to keep my old memories, even though I don't have those things. And it's given me an opportunity to start fresh. Fortunately, I have a business in Chico. So I still have things. I still have some tangible things and memories, but I, I didn't have underwear or pictures or my favorite pocket knife. Those things were gone. And I didn't need to replace those. Even now, two years later, I don't have a lot of things that I would put in a backpack if I had to keep one thing. Um, mm. Fire came. I don't know that I would grab much more than I did the first time. I don't need those things now. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, one thing that a lot of people can learn from. So you, when you all have it and when it's just there, you don't pay that much attention to it until the moment you lose everything. And then you realize I don't need that much. That's one of the things I hear you say. I don't need that much. I'm living a minimalistic way, even two years after date. Still, I'm really interested when you buy that sweater again, does it feel differently when you, when you buy that sweater? Because the first time you probably more purchased it in an unconscious way. And now you see it and you say, Hey, this was my favorite sweater that I once had. Is it a different sensation when you, when you get into a store like, okay, yeah, I can purchase it financial. That's good for you that you can do it. But is the, the relationship with purchasing in itself is different or not? I definitely am much more intentional about my purchases now. In the past, it was more of an emotional decision. Of, oh, this is fun. I want this. Can I afford this? And it was something where I would purchase things and hold on to things too long. Now, when I go to purchase things, I definitely take a lot more precaution of, do I really need that? Does this item bring me joy? If not, I don't need to buy it. I don't need to have another pair of boots just because I need a pair of hiking boots. I don't need a sweatshirt just to have a sweatshirt. I don't need a different one for every day of the week. So now I'm more intentional of, I need this item. I'm going to go buy the one I really like because I want to have it for the rest of my life, but I want to have it long-term. Yeah. Whereas before it was, I want this jacket. It's fun. And then I'm, six months later, a year later, I buy a different jacket because I wasn't sure which one I liked better. Now I have two jackets. I don't need two jackets. I don't need two pairs of everything. I just need one when the time is right and I find the one I want. I'm actually a little more slow and I, I'm actually less emotional about it. To me, it's not that excitement of replacing, replacing things. It's more of a minimalistic appreciation for the things that I need, I will then buy. That, that is fantastic. Thank you for sharing that, Luke, because I think working with so many nationalities and when you look at when people are a little bit like, let's say sad or they're not living the life they want, they try to sedate themselves. And what I found out is that even you can sedate yourself by purchasing constantly stuff right and when you're living in a western world society you can go to the store and you can buy everything you want but what you're saying is like it's like an emotional process mostly in the past like oh yeah i'm i'm free and i'm feeling restless and i'm going to the store and i buy that new shirt or those new running shoes because they are the newest right and now you're much more like okay I don't need it. What is it that I actually need? How is the longevity of something? 
and how will it, let's say, serve me instead of why do I need it in the first place or why do I want it? Yeah. Also a unique thing for me was pre-fire, I spent time in a dance studio. So fashion was somewhat important. Yeah. Go to dance conventions. We were performers. We would, we would dance. We would be, people would be looking at us. I would be a DJ. I would DJ weddings. I would DJ clubs. So pre-fire, a lot of my clothes or things were not necessarily a status symbol, but it was still important to, part of my job was to show up and be presentable. Post-fire, for about six months, nobody in town cared what they looked like. I would see friends and they would just be dirty and there would still be smoke on cars and people would just be like, we lost, we don't care. So going through the smoke and coming out without some of that public persona. Now I'm definitely not a big deal, but in a small town, I was doing things that people would look to the DJ of the room or the dance instructor of the room. That public persona was somewhat stripped from me. So a blessing was in 2019, I no longer had a dance studio. I no longer had students that were looking to me. I no longer was really DJing. It was, I almost was in an alternate dimension of, so I'm in Chico, everything's fine here, but all my possessions are gone. Everything I remembered, I moved out to this canyon, it's all gone. My studio is closed. All my businesses are closed. I'm not seeing anybody that I, when I see people, it's not the same context. I have a son, like everything was just this weird alternate dimension, which changed how I looked at experiences and possession. I no longer needed possession. I no longer cared what I looked like. It was actually, I grew my hair out fairly long. I don't know how long my hair was when I met you. It was pretty shaggy. I just didn't <laughs> care. Somebody could think what they wanted to think. I didn't care. Whatever. And and what did that give you? I mean, because probably it's something you still, like what I hear you say is you lose a part of your identity being that the person in the spotlight in a way, you lose a part of that identity and you didn't care mm-hmm. everything that happened. Um, if you look where you are now, two years later, how did that change your life? It was, and I say this cautiously, it was a fantastic experience. And I say that cautiously because I know for a lot of people, I know it was so traumatic. It was the worst thing that ever could possibly happen to them. And I have for that. Yeah. We were in a unique situation that it was partly because of our mental, our willful choice, our mental outlook, and partly just because we were in a different circumstance, age, time of life, physical position in the fire. Uh, For us, it was a, not a blessing. It was a curse. It was definitely traumatic, but it was a fantastic experience to go through because of experiencing that loss helped reshape how we think about things. You know, people often worry about what other people think of them or how much money they have or whatever success is to them. Yes. All of those standards of what success was just disappeared overnight. I no longer have things. I no longer have a house. I'm officially homeless. I don't look good. I'm covered. My clothes are dirty. My pants are too big because that's what I have. Somebody brought me a belt a week later. I just said on Facebook, I would love to have a belt. Somebody brought me a belt. Wow. My pants didn't fit. So going through that experience, you know that, right? You, whatever your life experience is, you know that, oh, it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter. He who dies with the most toys still dies. I mean, there's all these things, but you still have to, to deal with that feeling and emotion. 
this was just a and there's a difference right Luke sorry that I interrupt but there's a difference between knowing it and actually going through it and that you feel it so you go through an experience because that's what you see a lot of so many people know those things but the moment you lose it all you lose that status you lose your stuff you get a redefinition of your identity and a redefinition of your what what success means to you absolutely and it's just like that that ice bath going into it you know okay i'm going to be prepared i'm going to do this but i just hate hated the cold. So it doesn't matter how much you mentally prepare for it. Fortunately, I, my wife and I were in a mental position going into the fire that we were mentally saying we can handle this. So that allowed us to handle it. In the past, I couldn't handle cold. So whenever I got cold, I would freeze and I would just, I would shut down. But willfully choosing, if I go into that circumstance, I can handle it made a big difference in this circumstance with the fire, knowing that. And then going through it and experiencing it was just tangible. And if you now took, because you already say, I, I created, of course, it's all, it happens through the experiences you went through, but you say, hey, I created, or unconsciously, I redesigned my identity. And also you got a redefinition of what success means to you. If I would have met Luke before the fire, what would be your definition of success done then in one or two sentences? I don't know how many, how much outwardly change. I don't know if people would notice much difference in me. I don't know. Success before the fire would be the same as what it is now, I think. But experiencing it is different. You know, I was trying to build a homestead. I was trying to uh, go to yard sales and get things. It's like, okay, look, I have this cool place. People liked coming to our place in the canyon because it was, uh, it was fun. It had a beautiful view. I had a dance studio. I had a business that was open. A lot of my identity, identity. Uh, when I say what success is, losing the house was part of it, but also having to close the dance studio. I didn't want to let go of the dance studio because I felt like I had to keep it open. If I closed the dance studio, I'd be failing. After 13 years of having it open, nobody wants to close a business. The fire forced me to close it. The dance studio was fun. It was a passion. It was a dream. But it wasn't the biggest financial moneymaker. It was just a, a job. It was fun. I was forced to have to close it. And that rechanged my thinking of, okay, I didn't have the choice to choose what I'm doing with my things, with where I live, with my business, with how my identity is in the public community. Success isn't about those things. Success is about how I deal with circumstances. I treat people really well. My success of how I, how I view myself treating other people, but my relationship with my wife has improved and that's success. It's easy for me to be nice to strangers. It's easy for me to be nice to my friends. It's easy for me to be nice to my enemies. It's just a nice thing I can do that. But still in here, being the best you can be at home with my son, with my wife, that success, spending that, that personal victory that nobody else gets to see. So I don't think I would look any different on the outside. No. But I think my wife notices a huge difference after the fire. But what I hear you say, to just also for the, uh, to see the pattern, in a way what I hear you say is maybe you couldn't see it, but success for you in the past meant more externally, like how, what, what you had and how people perceived you. And maybe not consciously because it's not like, oh, let's, 
let's see how I can create success. And, and everybody's looking at me, but you felt the result of people looking at you and you had that dancing studio and you were that DJ. But what I hear you say, the, the new definition for you for success means how will I show up to my partner? How will I show up to my kids? And what's the legacy I leave behind with that little boy growing up? And how do I show up when it comes to my friends and my enemies? And that's more internal way of working on your success. Would you agree? Yeah, I think you summarized that well. Yeah, I think I was raised with all of those concepts. But it was easy to fall into, unknowingly fall into the trap of external things. As much as I knew it was about internal, going through the fire forced it to have to be 100% internal yeah. success. And when you have that internal success, and, and let's say it's not being dependent anymore on that external part, but more focused on the internal part, what is it that you gain from that? Because I know for a fact that there's a gain when you just focus on the internal success instead of the external success. There is a lot of peace and joy knowing that internally, I mean, I'm in control of where I'm at. I think that's, that's a definite, definite joy that comes from that. I wish I had more to say about that. I'm long-winded about a lot of stuff. There's definitely some, some joy from that internal control. Uh, and I think this is one of those golden nuggets uh, look that everybody can learn from because when indeed you can grow up with all the positive intentions of your parents for uh, focusing on external peace and rest and balance and harmony, but you still grew up in a, let's say in the USA, land of opportunities, creating success and, and being someone, hey, everybody can be someone. So it's all uh, unconsciously, you still shift a little bit to that external validation uh, part. And I know for a fact that that takes so much energy uh, putting it into your business. And what you say with that, uh, that tends to you, I think it's a wonderful example. You sustain it because people perceive you in that way. And now because of the fires, you would choose like, okay, it's not there anymore. And now I focus inwards and there's much more peace and rest and quiet, right? I think a side note that really talks about what you're saying is before the fire, I was raised that money is not important. Success and fame is not important. You know, really the, my parents have been amazing at teaching me so many core values, but there's still a dichotomy with that in life of, but you have to pay the bills but you have to feed your family. I'm not a traditional guy that went and got a degree and had a normal eight to five job with a social security retirement. I've been self-employed my whole life. I didn't finish college. I officially uh, filed for a leave of absence. I'm not officially a dropout, but I didn't finish <laughs> college. Yeah. It was always that dichotomy of, but I'm successful. Look, I have these businesses and I'm doing these things and in America, it's tough because you, I wasn't subscribing to the normal eight to five, get a degree, have a wife, two kids. I didn't get married till 34. I didn't have a, my first kid till 38. So I was a little bit, a little bit later in life for, for a lot of Americans in my time. So I didn't follow the traditional path. And that was this dichotomy of struggle of, but I shouldn't value possessions or money, but my mom still wants me to get a real job and to be able to have a 401k. And so before the fire, I knew what success should mean, but I was fighting with what that meant. I worked for a lot of, with the marketing outside of the dance studio, I worked with a lot of millionaires. They would hire me to make things for them. Very wealthy people. So I would see all of these wealthy people I'd be making videos and websites for. And then the dancing, some of the people I worked with would have a lot of money and I'd see that, but I'd still want to be 
but to people that didn't have the money and I, it was, I understood it, but after the fire, I will make money to provide for my family, but I don't, it's a different, it's a different view on what success is now. It forces me to have to deal with that dichotomy of what is success? How externally and internally does that balance? Yeah. So in a way, you're more embodying, no, but I, I really love this because you, and what you say is you're embodying internally more at the factor of success in a way, the rules, because as human beings, we create rules when we tell ourselves this is success, even, and, and, and yes, you have your parents, they, they give you part of your values, but you also have your environment. And yes, you have the bills that need to be paid. And if you work with a peer group, for example, of millionaires that you see those things, and sometimes we get that feeling we need that too, to be successful, but the race to get there, it is never enough, right? It's never enough because you can have your dance studio, you can have your DJ equipment, you can have everything. Most of the time it still isn't enough until you go inwards, what you're saying in a way you were forced by what happened. You created new rules of the game for success for yourself. Yeah, I think I know what it was. Before the fire, before the fire, I knew that internal success mattered and outward success didn't matter. But there was that struggle of, but I still need to be successful. And I almost had a hard time making money and earning money because I wanted to do things because of the internal success. And I wanted to do things out of the goodness of my heart, but I didn't want to charge money. I almost didn't want to be wealthy before the fire, even though I wanted to be wealthy. And I knew that everybody else thought that was important before that was a struggle of, can I actually make money? Am I worthy of money? Even though I charge a lot of money, I don't want to keep the money. So I almost would spend the money as fast as I would get it because I was afraid to have money. After the fire, I don't need or want money, but now I'm okay making money and holding on to because it's, it's, in, it's okay inside now, if that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and this is, of course, the, <laughs> the million-dollar question. Do you also uh, now recognize or, let's say, see other results within your business? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, how I view projects, yeah. how I charge clients, how I make business decisions have all shifted. Before, I used to want to do a lot of uh, donations, a lot of freelance projects, a lot of spec work. Um, but then I would charge money and then I would try to say, okay, how do, I, how do I build more success, not money? Because I think money is, I was told money isn't good. So I need to build this business success now it's just it's different it's yeah i don't know so in a way okay. you've created a new relationship with success you in a way you rewritten for yourself the, the 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 rules of the game for what success means to you but the result for that and also by the way you also created a new set of rules around money your beliefs around money and i think that's crucial when you're an entrepreneur what you think you're worth, uh, what you can charge and all those kinds of things. It is an emotional, mental game instead of a real like strategic game, right? There are some strategic sides of it, but it's mostly emotional and psychological, right? And then the result is, is that you created another, let's say, way of working in your business and even another income that is connected to that and probably with a lot less stress than you did in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the past, it was easy to be busy. Success was somewhat based on, but you're busy. I'm working. Look, I'm doing things. Yes. And now it's, 
like was Tim Ferriss, the four hour work week of, I don't need to be working to be successful. I need to be effective. I don't need to be efficient. I need to be effective. If I can be effective in less hours, if I can be more effective for my clients and do things more effectively for them, that's more important than me doing things all the time, efficiently doing 60 hours a week, always being perceived as being successful. Yeah, that, that's a, that's an interesting one. And I think even more in the US than here in, in uh, the Netherlands or in Europe is that the, the amount of hours to grind is almost equals for a lot of people, let's say the level of success. Because if you're part of the busy tribe, I'm part of it too. And then we're both busy. So yeah, let's all say to each other that we are busy and we feel busy. So that's why we burn out most of the time. Absolutely. I definitely fell into that trap before the fire. Post-fire, I would rather not be busy. I don't need to be doing things. I don't I don't care what anybody else thinks at this point. I'm going to find my time to do the things that I need to do for our family success. Mm. Yeah. I'm interested in, in an, a next statement for you just to see how that's changed for you. And maybe it isn't, but I'm really curious for that. Would you be before the fire somebody that really could overthink things a lot? And how is it now after the fire? Did it change in one way or the other for you? Yeah, certain things I definitely overthought before the fire. I think, uh, for example, and I, I found that out also in, in the other open conversations is that as human beings, we sometimes naturally have the tendency to really focus on all the what ifs and we get stuck on the level of thinking. So um, what you, you already mentioned it several times. So you got, let's say, lessons in your uh, childhood and you knew it. So you... And your cognitive part of your brain is analyzing things, but you're not really embodied it and integrated it in yourself. So a lot of people get stuck on the level of constantly overthinking everything. But I can imagine when you're in a situation like that, first of all, your whole reality just changes in, in let's say, a few hours. And you're already, in a way, changed part of who you are by being more, let's say, focused on that inner success. Would that also yeah. mean that you would trust more your intuition or overthink things less? Before the fire, I started dancing when I was in college, actually high school. And I danced through college until I was 38. So I spent almost two decades, from 18 to 20, uh, 38. So I spent 20 years in my college years. So I spent two decades around college students, around dancing, around DJing, around nightlife. So... I don't know how much of it was the fire or the flames or how much of it was losing my possessions. But in that short 90 days of losing all my possessions, having a baby, closing a dance studio, forced me to grow and mature into a way that did change how I thought and felt. A lot of maturity and a lot of wisdom. I was no longer... 18 before the fire, the day before the fire, I was still 18 in my mind. Yeah. After the fire, suddenly I'm 38. I am no longer a dancer. I'm no longer have a house. I know I'm now a dad with no personal possessions and a new identity. So that changed my thinking. I cared less about how other people viewed me. I cared less about the persona or the perceived success. I cared less about, I'm a very thought, I'm a very thoughtful person, but I'm also very emotionally driven by my heart. I still retain my emotions after the fire, but I no longer am just uh, a slave to my emotions because that doesn't 
it's no longer, is that, is that exciting or do I, do I want it moving forward in my life as I go two decades in my thirties? What do I, what do I want to have? What do I willfully choose to have happen? So a lot of maturity, a lot of refinement happened in that 90 days of everything in my life is completely 100% different. Wonderful. One thing that I always ask to everybody that comes on calls like this is, and you're a father, right? You're already said I matured. So because of everything that happened in, in, let's say, in a split second in those 90 days after what happened, I believe that there is a legend or a legacy in every human being. And now you're a father, look, and if you, let's say you will blow out your last breath on the last day of your life, what is it that you hope that legacy that you leave behind for your kid or kids, the, le- the number one lesson that they should embrace based on everything that happens in your life until now? I don't have an answer to that right now. And I wish I did. Um, I think on my last breath, the legacy I would like to leave behind for my family, for my kids, I think the number one value would be love, a universal love for all people. That was a value I had before the fire, coming from a Christian background, post-fire from really going through tragedy, seeing the universe for what it is, uh, where the source of life comes from, from a global perspective. I think from what I've seen around the world, uh, love is the most important thing. It's not about how much you have or what the things you do. It's about caring for others. Even if nobody knows who you are, uh, having that love for others and sharing that love, I think for me is the legacy I'd like to leave behind. Thank you so much. What an amazing interview and what an inspiration is. Look, so if you, your life would change tomorrow instantly, if you would lose it all, What is the one thing that you can always fall back on? Let me know, share it on social media and tag me because I'm really curious. I'm wishing you a great day. Thank you for joining us. If you don't want to miss an episode of Exit the Red Race, make sure to subscribe. Are you listening through Apple Podcasts? We'd love you to leave a review. Do you know someone who really should hear this episode? Share it in your favorite social media so you can tag them. Oh, and don't forget to tag Daniel as well. Want to know more about Daniel Kluke? Check out his website at danielkluke.com. Are you ready to live your legend? See you next time. Exit the rat race.